Chapter Twenty Three of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A world old longing. Looking back upon the long period of Taylor's convalescence, Marion Harlan could easily understand why she had surrendered to the patient. In the first place, she had liked Taylor from the very beginning, even when she had affected to ridicule him on the train coming towards Dawes. She had known all along that she liked him, and on that morning, when she had visited the Arrow to ask about her father, Taylor had woven a magnetic spell about her. That meeting, and the succeeding ones, had merely strengthened her liking for him. But the inevitable intimacy between nurse and patient during several long weeks of convalescence, had wrought havoc with her heart. Taylor's unfailing patience and good humor had been another factor in bringing about her surrender. It was hard for her to believe that he had fought a desperate battle which had resulted in the death of three men and the wounding of Carrington and himself. For there were no savage impulses or passions gleaming in the eyes that followed her every movement while she had been busy in the sick room for some weeks. Nor could she see any lingering threat in them, promising more violence upon his recovery. He seemed to have forgotten that there had been a fight, and during the weeks that she had been close to him, he had never mentioned it. He had been content, it seemed, to lounge in a chair and listen to her while she read, to watch her, and there had been times when she had seen a glow in his eyes that told her things that she longed to hear him say. The girl's surrender had not been conveyed to Taylor in words, though she was certain he knew of it, for the signs of it must have been visible, since she could feel the blushes in her cheeks at times when a word or a look passing between them was eloquent with the proof of her aroused emotions. It was on a morning about six weeks following the incident of the shooting that she and Taylor had walked up to the river. Upon a huge flat rock near the edge of a slight promontory, they seated themselves. Taylor turned slightly, so that she had only a profile view of him. Taylor's thoughts were grave. From where he and the girl sat, far beyond the vast expanse, of green-brown grass that carpeted the big level, he could see a huge cleft in some mountains, and the sight of that cleft sent Taylor's thoughts leaping back to the days he and Larry Harlan had spent in these mountains, searching for and finding that gold for which they had come, and inevitably, as the contemplation of the mountains brought him recollections of Larry Harlan, he was reminded of his obligation to his old-time partner, and the difficulties of discharging that obligation were increasing, it seemed. At least Taylor's duty was not quite clear to him, for while Parsons still retained a place in the girl's affections, he could not turn over to her Larry's share of the money he had received from the sale of the mine, and Parsons did retain the girl's affections, likewise her confidence and trust. A man must be blind who could not see that. For the girl looked after him as any dutiful girl might care for a father she loved. 
Her attitude toward the man puzzled Taylor, for he assured himself, if she would but merely study the man's face perfunctorily, she could not have failed to see the signs of deceit and hypocrisy in it, all of which convinced Taylor of the truth of the old adage, love is blind. One other influence which dissuaded Taylor from an impulse to turn over Larry's money to the girl was his determination to win her on his own merits. That might have seemed selfishness on his part, but now the girl was at the arrow, he could see that she was well supplied with everything she needed. Her legacy would not buy her more than he would give her gratuitously. And he did not want her to think, for a single moment, he was trying to buy her love. That, to his mind, was gross commercialism. Marion was not looking at the mountains. She was watching Taylor's profile and blushing over thoughts that came to her. For she wished that she might have met him under different conditions, upon a basis of equality. And that was not the basis upon which they stood now. She had come to the Arrow because she had no other place to go, vindicating her action upon Taylor's declaration that he had been her father's friend. That had been a tangible premise, and was sufficient to satisfy, or to dull, any surface scruples he might have had regarding the propriety of the action. But her own moral sense struck deeper than that. She felt that she had no right to be here. That Taylor had made the offer of a partnership out of charity, and so long as she stayed here, depended upon him for food and shelter, she could not permit him to speak a word of love to her, much as she wanted him to speak it. Such was the puritanical principle, driven deep into the moral fabric of her character, by a mother who had set her a bad example. This man had fought for her. He had risked his life to punish a man who had wronged her in thought, only, and she knew he loved her, and yet, seated so near him, she could not put out the hand that longed to touch him. However, her thoughts were not tragic, far from it. Youth is hopeful because it has so long to wait. And there was in her heart at this moment a presentiment that time would sever the bounds of propriety that held her. And the instincts of her sex, though never having been tested in the arts of coquetry, told her how to keep his heart warm towards her until that day, having achieved her independence, she could meet him on a basis of equality. Mr. Squint, she suddenly demanded, what are you thinking about? He turned and looked full at her, his eyes glowing with a grave humor. I'd tell you if I thought you'd listen to me, he returned significantly, but it seems that every time I get on that subject, you poke fun at me. Is there anything I can do to show you that I love you, that I want you more than any man ever wanted a woman? Yes, there is. Her smile was tantalizing. Name it, he demanded eagerly. Stop being tragic. I don't like you when you are tragic, or when you are talking nonsense about love. I've heard so much of it. From me, I suppose, he said gloomily. He had turned his head, and she shot a quick, eloquent glance at him. "'From you and several others,' she said, deliberately. 
there was a resentful, hurtful look in his eyes when he turned and looked at her. Just how many, he demanded, somewhat gruffly. Jealous, she said, shaking her finger at him. Do you want a bill of particulars? Because if you do, she added, looking demurely downward, I should have to take several days to think it over. You see, a woman can't catalogue everything men say to her, for they say so many silly things. Love isn't silly, he declared. He looked rather fiercely at her. What kind of a man do you like best, he demanded. She blushed. I like a big man, about as big as you, she said. A man with fierce eyes that glower at a woman when she talks to him of love. She insisting that she hasn't quite fallen in love with him. I like a man who is jealous of the reputation of the woman he professes to love. A man who is jealous of other men. A man who isn't so very good-looking, but who is a handsome man, for all that, because he is so very manly. A man who will fight and risk his life for me. Could you name such a man, he said. There was a scornful gleam in his eyes. I'm looking at him this minute, she said. Grinning, for he knew all along that she had been talking of him, he wheeled quickly and tried to catch her in his arms. But she slipped off the rock and was around on the other side of it, keeping it between them while he tried to catch her. Instinctively, he realized that the chase was hopeless, but he persisted. I'll never speak to you again if you catch me, she warned, her eyes flashing. But you told me. That I liked you, she interrupted, and liking a man isn't. And then she paused and looked down, blushing, while Taylor, in the act of vaulting over the rock, collapsed and sat on it instead, red of face and embarrassed. For within a dozen paces of them, and looking rather embarrassed and self-conscious himself, though with a twinkle in his eyes that made Taylor's cheek turn redder, was Bud Hemingway. "'I'm begging your pardon,' said the puncher, "'but I've come to tell you that Neil Norton is here again. "'He's been setting on the porch for an hour or two, he says, "'but I think he's stretching it. "'Anyway, he's tired of waiting for you, he says, "'and he's been wondering if you was going to set on that boulder all day.' "'Taylor slipped off the rock and started toward Bud, feigning resentment. Bud, his face agitated by a broad grin, deliberately winked at Miss Harlan, though he spoke to Taylor. I'd be a little careful about how I went to jumping off boulders. You might bust your ankle again. And then Taylor grinned at Miss Harlan, who pretended a severity she did not feel, while Bud, cackling mirthfully, went towards the ranch house. End of chapter 23